Okay, I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 24. Several passages I want to, I want to look at this morning. Luke, and then we're going to go back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, which Genesis means beginnings. Luke chapter 24, I'm going to get right into it because we do have the Lord's table and baptism service. Uh, but before I do, and as you're turning to Luke chapter 24, let me pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the great gift of the Word of God. Lord, without it, we would be literally in the dark spiritually. We would have no answers to the questions that we would desire to have answers to. But thank you, Lord, that you didn't speak in the dark. You spoke on the housetop. And you spoke in your word, and it's available to all people of this whole world in all different languages. And I thank you, Lord, that we're able to have it in our hand. Read it, and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give us understanding so we can live it in our life, so we can know what the Lord's done for us, who he is, and where we're going and what we're to do while we're here. So thank you, Lord, for all that. Bless us this morning and all that we do and hear in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 24, if you look at verse 13, this is uh, after the resurrection. This is after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And you notice in verse 13, it says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, following um, Christ's resurrection, Cleophas and a friend were going to Emmaus when they encountered another traveler on the road with them. Now, the two disciples were walking to Emmaus. When this stranger came up to them, they didn't know who it was at first, uh, not until later on, way later on, actually the end of the day, they discovered who it was. But we know from Scripture it was Jesus himself, that these three travelers walked and talked together, and the disciples did not recognize the stranger for a long time. Jesus asked them what they were talking about, and he was asking them as a stranger. And the disciples told him, all about the crucifixion, the empty tomb, and how discouraged they were because they were hoping that this one, this Jesus, would be the hope of Israel. And so look at verse number 14, and let me read that. It says this in verse 14, And they were talking with each other about all these things, this is Luke chapter 24, that had taken place, in verse 15, while they were walking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, and their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleophas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And he was actually acting the stranger, and they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. 
verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened, verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that he had also seen a vision of that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women, the women also had said, but they did not see. But him they did not see. Now Jesus actually ends up rebuking these two disciples. And if you look at verse 25, go down to verse 25, it says, And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Notice verse 26. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Concerning himself. So, so when these three, when the three of them reached Emmaus, Jesus accepted their invitation to spend the night. And as they ate the evening meal, he blessed the bread and broke it and gave it to them at that very moment. Now, at the moment of the Lord's table, look at verse number 30. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, and he began giving it to them. Now he reveals himself, verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished out of their sight. So, Jesus was, was saying, focusing everything that he did on the Lord's table, specifically on his suffering and crucifixion. And that's what the Lord's table is about, his suffering in behalf of sinners. That is what it's about. Now, let me take you to the end of this chapter, chapter 24, verse, look at verse number 45. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And then, this is where I really want you to notice. And he said to them, verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So according to to scripture Jesus started to explain to the disciples from the law section of scripture that means from the beginning of the Bible from Genesis the books of Moses alright and by the way for your information Jews divided the scriptures into three sections the law the first section the writings or the Psalms, the second section, and then the prophets, the third section. That's the whole Old Testament. All right, the whole te Old Testament can be broken up into those three sections. In fact, if you look down at verse 44 of Luke chapter 24, that's what it says. 
It says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, all the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus. Do you realize that? That all the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus. In fact, when the apostles preached, they preached the Old Testament. Right? They had an understanding of the the Old Testament as God gave them more revelation about what it meant. And so it had its own context, and it had a context for us today, filling in the blanks of what it meant. Now, let me continue to answer the question, and the question that really is in this text, why did Jesus have to die? This is part two. And to continue to answer that question, I want to go back to the beginning. So let's take our Bibles and turn back to Genesis. Not hard to find Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And let's look at Genesis chapter 3, all right? And we'll begin there. And this morning, at least, I would like to start from Genesis the creation, and then let's go to the Tower of Babel. Now, that's, that's, I'm taking a young earth view that moves us forward approximately 2,166 years, 2166 B.C. Now, there's no reason, I would like to mention that, there's no reason to take the creation account as anything but literal an entirely factual record of God's creative activity about the beginning of time. God was there. He was able to tell us what happened because he did it. All right, so just leave that in your mind as a note. Let me look at, actually, this is number eight in my list, and it's this. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, To do that, let's look at our Bibles, chapter 3 of Genesis, and look at verse number 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall eat from every tree, from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then it says, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loin coverings. Now, if you see in verse number 6, the downward spiral of temptation that still takes place today. And what is it? The temptation is you see something, you desire something, and then you take it. All right? And they took it, 
and that became disobedience. They disobeyed God, and they plundered the whole human race into sin. You and I are under the judgment of sin because of Adam and Eve, and we are, of course, descendants of Adam and Eve, and um, that is an important thing. Now, the Bible does also note for us that there's a remarkable promise given in Genesis 3, and it's found in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, in this passage of Scripture, God begins to lay forth and provides the seed from which the plan of salvation would erupt. Now, many things happened in the garden that necessitated the death of Christ. Here are just a few of them, and I want to throw them out to you, that man chose his own path in the garden, and that path led away from God into spiritual wilderness. In other words, we call it this, that man became lost that day. Another thing is that man chose to listen to and to follow another voice other than God's voice, and he chose to listen and to follow Satan and joined in his rebellion against God, and so that man on that day became an enemy of God. Another thing is that man chose to sin against God, which brought consequences, and the consequences were separation between the perfect holy God and man, and so man became alienated from God. And then man, man's ear was now closed to God, and in turn to the father of lies, and open to the father of lies, and Satan willingly employs his lies to keep men deceived and blind, still doing that even today. So man became a slave to Satan and a slave to sin. And then Man's rebellion against God and the breaking of his laws caused God to take the posture of a judge. And those who sinned are found guilty of a crime, and so man became guilty before a holy God. And then one of a last thing is that man as a sinner came to a place where he had to pay a price for his sin. So the penalty of sin was death, so now, now man became a debtor with a huge price to pay for his sins. And as I covered last week, the wages of sin is death. Now, that death came in several forms. Physical death, where your spirit is separated from your bodies. Uh, that's physical death. Spiritual death, and that's when your spirit is separated from God that man's relationship with God was over at the fall. Man, all people born are spiritually dead to God. So man is dead to God. And that's why in Genesis 3, verse 24, it says, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed a cherubim, that's an angel, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. And so what happens is uh, man fell away from God he died on that day spiritually he could no longer respond to God now some people believe that at the fall uh, that uh, 
the fallen sinner was under the wrath of God, but did not lose everything in the fall, they still had the natural ability to respond to God. Or, in other words, they, man was just wounded on that day. Uh, there's a, another group that says at the fall of man, uh, man must depend fully on God for salvation and is totally dependent on the grace of God, even for his initial response to the gospel. So one group said that man was just rendered wounded and still had the ability to respond to God. I don't believe that. I believe that at the fall, man was rendered dead. So we're dead in trespasses and sin, and, and we cannot respond to God whatsoever. Dead people can't respond to things, and especially to God. So what was the problem? Well, the problem was this, that some people have... Uh, people cr choosing Christ and cooperating with God's grace in their fallen dead state before being regenerate, before being born again, before they have the Spirit of God in them. P some people have people not born again seeing and choosing the kingdom of God, yet the Word of God tells us unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom. So God has to regenerate us, make us born again, to believe, to see the kingdom, and then to enter it. Man, of course, lost that. He was rendered dead at the cross. And if he stayed spiritually dead, that would lead to eternal death. And eternal death in Scripture is called the second death. That sin pays its full wages in the second death. And separation from God is now eternal and all the expressions of God's love are lost in a place called hell. And we already know from our Bibles that on our scripture reading uh, uh, through the Bible that the scriptures already tell us in Chronicles, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. So how far removed mankind became as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. See, man could do nothing to deal with the consequences, nor could he regain a right standing before God or be accepted back into the presence of God. Why? Because of disobedience, because of sin. However, in our text in Genesis chapter 3, there are attempts made to get back and right with God get into his presence again. And so Adam and Eve made an attempt and covered up their sin by clothing themselves with fig leaves. Look what it says in verse number 7. It says, The eyes of both of them were opened, this is Genesis 3, 7, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden then God called and the Lord God called to the man and says to him where are you and he says I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself so here's the consequences of sin here man being afraid of God, man not understanding God anymore, and moving further and further away from him, and now attempting to try to get into the, the presence of God by covering themselves. And so that's what's going on here. See, fig leaves 
are unacceptable coverings for sin because it was not God's way. Clothing could cover their naked bodies, but it could not cover their sinful hearts. See, the clothing had to be another kind of clothing. So what God does in Genesis is something quite amazing because he makes not only a promise, but he gives a provision, and it becomes a universal provision. How does man get back to God? How does man get forgiven so he can enter into the presence of God? How does that going to happen? Well, notice verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So who, who provided this? God did. And what it means is that an animal would have to shed his blood unto death to provide covering for sin so this is god's way of acceptability this is god's provision that just as an animal had to die to clothe adam and eve in an with acceptable clothing so they can be in the presence of god so jesus had to die to make us acceptable in the presence of god it's jesus death right that gives us the ability, uh, the opportunity to come into the presence of God, that becomes God's way. So see, Jesus had to die because of what happened in Eden. Secondly, or number nine, the next reason Jesus had to die is because of what happened between Cain and Abel. Now if you look at Genesis chapter 4, both the children of Adam and Eve brought sacrifices to God. Cain's sacrifice, though, was unacceptable. In verse number 3 of Genesis 4, it says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. See, Cain did not listen to God about how to have his sin covered and be made right with the Lord, but had his own ideas about approaching God. And that's what happens. So Cain brought an offering from the tilling the ground, and he brought it to the Lord. But notice how the Lord responded to his offering in verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. In other words, self-styled worship is always fashionable. It is very fashionable in our day. So in our present day, we have feel-good theology. We have Jesus made to order. We have Christianity light. So whatever you want, it's out there. People have, that's why there's so many religions in the world. I try to find out how many religions are in the world. I couldn't get a number because every day a new one starts. There, there's so many because men decide, this is my philosophy of life. This is way, the way I think I, I can may be made right, right with God if they believe in God or they make their own God up in their mind or whatever it may be. So Cain, see, brought a sacrifice that did not fall in line with God's way of dealing with the promise of sin. Vegetables do not shed blood. And that fact cannot be ignored. In fact, 
in, when I was in the book of Hebrews, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be that. So, so his sacrifice, Cain's sacrifice, did not provide an atonement covering for his sin. Even the apostle John, uh, in his epistle of 1 John, said this in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother and for what reason did he slay him because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous see what made his deeds evil was simply this he took another take other than god's he made something up that god said not to do and so therefore that becomes evil that's wickedness it's twist that's the twist of sin now, on the other hand, Abel brought his sacrifice in Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, and notice what it says there. It was accepted by God. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstling, firstlings of the, his flock and their fat portions, and Abel listened to God, and his sacrifices reflected trust in God's way of dealing with the sin problem. So what's God's response to Abel in verse number 4? And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So in other words, in Abel's offering, in this innocent animal, that from his flock, he had to kill an animal, and he had to bring the animal before the Lord. The animal had to die, shed his blood, and that became the acceptable method of God covering sin. So his offering became a picture of substitution. In other words, the animal shed its blood so Abel might have a covering for sin. And then, of course, it was a picture of atonement that not only someone else died in this place, substitution, but atonement, his sins were covered. And so only through Jesus' death on the cross could man's relationship that was broken by the sin of disobedience be restored as the New Testament book of Colossians points out how a sinner who was an enemy of God because of their sin record and their personal sin and the sin that was transmitted to them can go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God for it says this and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death there it is that's how someone gets covered, their sin covered, by Jesus' one time, forever, eternal offering. And then it says, why? In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So see, when you believe in Jesus and his blood covers your sin, then God makes you acceptable to God. God makes you acceptable. And now it says blameless you have no more blame no more guilt nothing on your record at all whatsoever so you see jesus had to die because of cain and abel because of what happened in eden and here's a tenth reason and it's this and let's move forward to genesis chapter six and we see because i'm saying it like this because because of noah the preacher of righteousness you know the story of noah by the time Noah comes on the scene of human history, 
the people of the earth had largely ignored God's word. They have ignored the way to be made right with God. And so by the time we get to Noah in Scripture, the whole world lacks righteousness. There's, not, there's no, no righteousness on the earth except, well, look at chapter 6, verse 5. This is how the Lord, the Lord saw man. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that's how God looks at man. And then there came an anomaly of a man named Noah. And if you look at verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, why was Noah righteous? He was righteous because he did what God said. Because he brought offerings to the Lord that was able to cover his sin and the sins of his family. So see, the people's worldview and the people's philosophy of life were bound up in their own foolish, wicked, and darkened heart. See, they trusted their own heart. And you know what Proverbs, the book of wisdom, says about that in Proverbs 28, verse 26. He who trusts his own heart is a fool. Because our heart does not provide the information that we need to be right with God. That information must come from outside of us, not inside of us. And it comes from God's word. It comes from God speaking through the word of God. And so that's what the truth is. And so humanities really disregard for God's way of righteousness was so prevalent during the time of Mo Moses, all that God could do was hold judgment. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13, it says, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has, become, has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So God sends a worldwide flood. So the people of Noah's day were judged for their sin. So God will judge all men regardless of their philosophy of life or how they think about how to worship God. If it is wrong, if it's not God's way, then it, they will be judged for it. So people may reject God for uh, a period of time, but eventually they will be judged by God and paid their sin debt, and there's no way to escape God's judgment. There, there, is, there is nothing to keep one safe. However... Noah's time, in Noah's time, God did provide a way for himself and his sons to be kept safe. What was it? It was the ark, right? It was the ark that God delayed the flood for 120 years. And for, for this very purpose, for giving the world of people time to repent and believe Noah's message. That's why God did it. In fact, Peter... The Apostle Peter picks that up in Peter chapter 3, and he says, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So see, Noah challenged the unrighteous generation of his day to repent and to put their trust in God and warn them 
that if they continued in unbelief, divine judgment would definitely overtake them. And Peter says once again, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, of the unrighteous. So see, the ark provides a picture of the only way to escape God's judgment. That's the only way to escape. And so we read that Noah and his family got into the ark, entered into the ark, and because of the water of God's judgment that was coming, and that is exactly what happened. So just think of it. God only leaves, leaves one option of escaping the floodwaters, just one option. He doesn't leave many options. There was only one boat. There was only one door to enter and gain protection from the flood. There were not many entryways. Now, as I re relayed back to the death of Jesus, just as safety could only be found inside the ark, so only in Jesus can we find safety for, from everlasting punishment. Just as Paul said in the Word of God in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says this, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then it says this, and if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That Jesus, remember, rises from the grave. He defeats Satan and death and all that would be against us. So he is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to enter eternal life. So those who ignore or reject the way that Noah preached, if someone rejects the way of salvation through Christ, then, of course, eternal death will be its implications. The Bible is very explicit. Jesus is the only way to God. That means it's, it's a narrow way. It's a narrow road, right? It's very, very exclusive. And that's offensive to people, especially people who live in a world who have a pluralistic mindset about religion. That's a, there's many ways to God. Come on. You can't just say that Jesus is the only way. But that is true. In fact, that brings me to my last one this morning. The 11th one, the reason why Jesus had to die, is because of what happened at Babel. What happened at Babel. Look in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 11. Another way to define religion is man's efforts to reach God. Mankind, after ignoring God's way of acceptance and being made right with Him, if He does that, He's only left with His own self-style methods of worship. That's religion. Anybody can make a religion up. You can start a religion. Anybody can start a religion. Say, so I have a new way to 
to uh, worship. I have a new way to uh, get, get in tune with myself or the universe or whatever else they want to say, God. See, that's, that's religion. So that's what we have going on at Babel. The first incident of organized religion in the Bible. Let's look at it. Verse number 3 of Genesis chapter 11. It says, They said to one another, one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. In other words, Babel was a picture of mankind unified with one language in their efforts to rebel against God and to worship God in their own way. That's religion. See, at Babel, man slaved away with brick and tar. In the same way, religious systems are taskmasters on people. They require a constant struggle to be hoping you're, you're being uh, looked at by God in a way where God, in the end, will let you into his heaven. But religion demands an ever-increasing effort to please God or gods or spirits or idols or whatever somebody manufactures in their mind as to who their deity will, would be. And so God judges this sin in a very remarkable way. And if you look at verse number 5 of Genesis 11, you see the judgment of God. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, are all, they all have the same language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. In verse 7, notice, let, come let us, a bit of a Trinitarian verse there, the plurality of the Godhead, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. And verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language. You know, babbling. When we say someone's babbling, well, it comes from here. It comes from right from here that the Lord confused their language, all right, and then of the whole earth, and then there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So see, that's why we have so many languages in the world. That's why we have so many people groups in the world because from that place, God scattered the men and women of the world all over the place. And now they could not communicate. They could not organize against God, right? So they, they were split up because that was God's plan to get men to go throughout the whole world and, and make it fruitful, multiply, make it fruitful, and fill the whole earth. So there's many religions. You and I know that. And religious pluralism abounds in our day. But I want to warn you about pluralism. As the theologian uh, Doc, Don Carson defines pluralism as the view that all religions have the same moral and spiritual value and offer the same potential for achieving salvation. However, 
salvation be construed by any one particular religious group. So the pluralist question is really this. Is the work, is the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ necessary for salvation, or are there other bases for people being made right with God? Now, so far, from each section of just one part, a small part of the, of the Genesis account, showed us that there's only one way, God's way, and that's through the sacrifice and death of an animal. That was the temporary uh, picture, and then the ultimate picture would be Christ himself, who dies once, no longer repetitious sacrifices. He dies for all those who would put faith and trust in him. And so that becomes God's way. The pluralist believe that Jesus is the provision that God has made for Christians. But there are other ways of getting right with God and gaining eternal bliss in other religions. That's what they say. That the work of Christ is useful for Christians, but not necessary for non-Christians. Well, scripturally, Scripture strongly presses upon us the impossibility of eternal salvation, of sins forgiven, of being made right with God, of having uh, an entrance into the kingdom of God outside of Christ. It cannot happen. If it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin forever, we needed Christ, it is just as impossible for a Muslim to achieve his salvation by the five pillars of Islam. Or for a Hindu, a Hindu resolutions of renunciation. Or by Buddhist ethics or by Sikhism's patterns of self-salvation, or even by Catholicism's system of obtaining inherent righteousness by keeping the sacraments. All of them are systems of works. They are not systems of grace. And so then, it cannot possibly be that through his Though his death was necessary for the salvation of some, most could equally attain it in, by other means, may it never be. That's what Scripture would say. It cannot be. Why? Jesus Christ came into the world. No one else came into the world. Jesus Christ came into the world, took on human flesh, just as the prophets had said, just as Moses told us in all these uh, pictures in the Old Testament. Jesus became the only way of salvation. Jesus comes, he lives his life, he dies in the place of sinner, he dies in eternal death, he rises from the grave. No one else could claim that. No one else could come up with that. So all scripture affirms that the work of Christ is the only necessary means provided by God for eternal salvation for all people for all times. So the only way to God was provided by Jesus Christ himself. When in his mercy, God reached down to man in the person of Christ and that by God's grace, everything needed to restore a sinner's broken relationship and lack of righteousness was done by Jesus on the cross. That's a glorious message. 
that is a glorious message. So in some ways, I'm, I'm trying to give you a little window of when Jesus was walking with those disciples. I, it doesn't record what he says. But you know what? It doesn't have to. Why? It's already recorded. So Jesus was able to give an overview of the whole Old Testament Psalms and prophets to these disciples uh, before he opened their eyes to see who he really was. And, and that's what it is. You know, you can have all that information about who Jesus is uh, by, from Moses and from the prophets and, and from the Psalms and still be blinded. See, Jesus, a person has to be born again. They have to be brought to life by God's Spirit and God grants them faith and repentance to come and believe. Why? They're dead in sin. They can't see it. They don't, they don't see Jesus. Not until Jesus opens their eyes. So Roman, I mean, Hebrews 10 tells us, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So Jesus' sacrifice is so perfect and so final and so sufficient that it put an end to all repetitive sacrifices forever. It also gave to all who believe a permanent justification before God and a continuous position before God that would be enjoyed now and forever. Now and forever. For by grace you have been saved through faith and then none of yourselves. You can't save yourselves and not of course, as a result of works, so no one may boast. It's not by some religious system that someone made up and said, this is how you do it. It's by saying, this is the way God said to do it. Right? And then it says there, it's a gift of God. It's free. You don't have to work for it. You take it. You believe it. You put your faith in it. So eternal life cannot be found out apart from Christ. The thousands of years of history we just traveled through in just a short time had all their fulfillment in Christ. And I just leave you with the Luke passage. Thus it is written in Luke 24, 46, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. So Jesus Christ had to die. You can't get around that fact. That became the message of God from the very beginning, and it has not changed. And that is the message that saves people from eternal damnation. Amen? I pray that if you don't know Christ, that today would be the day that you come and believe by faith in the only one who could save you. I can tell you about salvation, I can tell you about God's plan, but I can't save you. Believe me, if I could, I would, but I can't. Christ can, though. And that's who I offer to you. I offer to you Christ. His death in behalf of sinners, washing away your sin, able to make you right with God, bring you into his presence, and then someday live in his eternal kingdom. That is the promise that we have in Scripture. And so, as we come now to the Lord's table, and the men who are serving, you can come right now, <coughs> the Lord's table again that's when Jesus opened up their eyes to show him who he was and in the Lord's table 
there's only two ordinances of the church, and you know, for the first time since I've been here, we're doing, we're doing both of them on one day. We usually don't. And that's the Lord's table and baptism. That's what the Lord gave the church. And so the Lord's table, I just want to remind you, is really commanded by Christ. Uh, he says, do this in remembrance of me, because we tend to forget the central central message of the gospel, the, the very thing that saves us. So we're reminded of it in the, the bread that re- represents the body of Christ and the, the fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Christ. Those are the elements that we are to remember. Right? It does confirm our interest in Christ as believers. Uh, and it, it does also, matter of fact, who else soberly comes to partake in the Lord's table uh, who are not disciples of Christ? People just don't do it. And if they do it, they do it without knowledge. Disciples of Christ are doing it with knowledge, with an understanding of what's going on. And so we really declare our different standing now in the family of God. We used to be in the family of the world. Now we're in the family of God. And so therefore, as I come to the Lord's table, as you come to the Lord's table, we should examine ourselves. We should confess our sins. We should discern Uh, what we're doing and then as we do that we're declaring about what God has done for us in his death we are thanking God for the great provision he's provided we we are filled with joy because it's this is not the end this life is not the end we're heading somewhere we're heading we're heading to the 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 heaven the kingdom of God we're going to spend eternity with the Lord so there is joy in it and, and we know that we're glory bound. So it really does declare our belief in the new covenant. It declares your belief that someday, believe it or not, you and I are going to be raised from the grave. We're going to get new bodies so we can actually live in the presence of the glory of God. That's going to be exciting that when that happens. And of course, we, we declare our belief in the return of Christ, that we either are going to die first and if you, uh, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, or the Lord's going to come, uh, whatever event happens, we're going to be involved with it on one side or the other, but we're going to be involved with it. And so in the Lord's table, we are declaring the death of Christ, but we're also, de- we're also declaring the return of Christ. So again, for by one offering, it says in Hebrews, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, and that's believers. God has taken his children and set them apart for himself. And so his children, while they're on this earth, are to partake in the Lord's table. And so if you are not a believer, you should not partake of the Lord's table. If you have children that have not believed in Christ and followed the Lord's and believer, in believer's baptism, they should not partake of the Lord's table. Only those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have followed in believer's baptism, our participants uh, for the Lord's table. So that's just a quick overview of what we're doing here this morning. And uh, let's, uh, I'm gonna, let's take a few minutes and, and examine ourselves uh, a time of quietness, and then we'll, I'll come back and we'll serve the elements, and then we'll have our baptism also.